VCG believes that creating climate solutions is the defining challenge of our generation. So we're working with leaders everywhere to understand and mitigate the cost of climate inaction. But we're also helping them find ways to innovate, build sustainable businesses, and stay competitive in an evolving world. Stick around to discover the many opportunities in a more sustainable global economy. Welcome to Zero. I'm Akshat Rati. This week, a year of war, ditching Russia, and Europe's new energy landscape. This time last year, Russia launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. What Russia hoped would be a quick three-day blitz has turned out to be a protracted land war that rocked a world still recovering from the COVID-19 pandemic. Its impact has spread far and wide, disrupting food systems, supply chains, geopolitics, and the global economy. Over the past year, I've been working with Bloomberg Energy reporter Will Mathis to look at one of those disruptions, how the war in Ukraine has transformed Europe's energy landscape. The shift has been remarkable, unprecedented in scale, and has immediate and long-term implication for the EU's climate goals. On today's episode, we turn the tables, and Zero's producer Oscar Boyd asks Will and I the questions instead. Will the attempts to ditch Russian fossil fuels speed up the energy transition, or will the high price paid for energy security make it harder for the EU to live up to its big goals? In the last 12 months, there's been an extraordinary change in where and how Europe sources its energy, something that the two of you, Will, Akshat, have been writing about since the start of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And in your article that went out a couple of days ago, you summed up what that year of war has done to Europe's energy supplies. What did you find? Over the past year, the headlines have been dominated by Europe's many attempts to try and help Ukraine deal with this war. There's been aid given lots of military supply, lots of meetings about how to deal with a Russian threat that may come to other countries. What's not been talked about, at least not in that lens, is how quickly Europe has moved away from Russian fossil fuels, strangling one of the biggest sources of funding for Putin's war machine. Put that into numbers for me. When you say it's unprecedented, they're moving quickly away from Russia's fossil fuel supply, they're stopping the funding to Russia's war machine. What does that mean? Well, Russia is a huge source of natural resources right on Europe's border. And before the war, Europe spent about a billion dollars a day to pay for gas, oil, and coal that it imported from Russia. And today that's dropped to a small fraction as Europe put embargoes on supplies and Russia cut supplies of some other fuels. Oil, crude oil, coal, and gas have fallen not quite to zero, but pretty close and much lower than anyone really thought was possible a year ago. Even European officials have been surprised. European Commission's president, Ursula von der Leyen, said earlier this month, Initially, we were discussing whether we are able to do that till 2027. Well, you know now that we have gotten rid of our dependency completely of Russian fossil fuels. It went much faster than we expected. That's good so. Take me back to this time last year when you first started reporting on this. Why was this question of Europe's dependency on Russia's energy so important at that time? So it's not just that Europe is paying Russia 
a billion dollars a day, which is then eventually getting into the war machine. But Russia controls the supply. And there was a risk that Russia would use its energy as a weapon, cut off gas supplies, cut off coal supplies, and that would bring Europe's economy and its people to its knees. And there was good reason to think that because even before the invasion started, Russian supplies of natural gas had already been cut back and prices in Europe had been going up. And in late 2021 and early 2022, people didn't know exactly why Putin was doing that. But once the invasion happened, it was clear that Russia was willing to use its energy supplies as leverage over Europe. Right. And so at a European level, politicians realize this is a pretty unsustainable relationship that they need to change quickly. If we go back to the start of February 2022, before the war is happening, as a percentage, how much of Europe's energy supply came from Russia? I mean, the numbers are spectacular. Europe is an energy dependent continent. About 60% of all the energy it consumed came from importing fossil fuels. Of that, 45% of its gas came from Russia, 27% oil, and 46% of its coal. And different countries had different exposure to these Russian fuels. Germany in particular built up a huge dependence on Russia. Over half its gas came from Russia. Italy, another one of the biggest European economies, got about 40% of its gas. And the Baltic region, which is right on Russia's doorstep, got three-fourths of their gas from Russia in 2021. And why is it that Europe became so dependent on Russian fossil fuels? I mean, you've mentioned one reason, which is just the actual proximity to Russia. But how did that relationship really develop? Well, it's, it's hard to underestimate how important being close is, especially when it comes to gas. With oil, you know, you can get oil anywhere in the world, put in a ship and send it where it needs to go. But with gas, that's much more difficult and much more expensive. And if you can get gas from somewhere nearby, it's going to be much cheaper. So Europe's economic growth and their ability to fund the transition to cleaner sources has been predicated on the ability to get really cheap energy today from Russia. And some of this goes back decades, right? During the Cold War, there was a push to have a separation between the Soviet Union and Western allies. But after the Soviet Union fell, Germany especially, but Europe in general, thought it would be a good idea to create this economic relationship tied to importing fossil fuels from Russia as a way to keep peace, which of course has been completely proven wrong over the last 12 months. And tell me more about that green transition element. Why did Europe's plans to go green mean that it ended up relying more on Russian fossil fuels? So coal is the dirtiest fossil fuel and Europe burned a lot of coal. Of course, going back all the way to the Industrial Revolution, gas provided the same amount of energy for about half the emissions. So gas was seen as a bridging fuel between dirty coal and clean energy. And because cheap gas, especially in the form of pipes from Russia, was available at the doorsteps, that seemed like the right option if Europe wanted to speed up its emissions reduction and find a way to make the transition as smooth as possible to clean energy. And gas also works really well paired with some renewable resources, particularly wind, which countries like Germany and the UK are ramping up significantly to cut emissions. So when the wind drops all of a sudden, but you still want to have the same amount of electricity available, you can really quickly burn more gas to match that, even as your emissions fall overall, as more wind is producing electricity. 
Another turning point in the story was the 2011 Tohoku earthquake and tsunami in northeast Japan and the meltdown that followed at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant. And that disaster completely changed how Germany approached its energy mix, particularly in regards to nuclear and also contributed to its dependence on Russian gas, right? I mean, France is the largest nuclear power in Europe and France has not particularly wavered. But Germany wavering on nuclear mattered a lot because its replacement meant it would use more coal found in its own backyard, some of the dirtiest form of coal you could get. And as Germany started to set out more green goals, it needed to cut coal use. And what did it do? Build pipes to Russia. So we get to February 24th, 2022. Russia launches its full-scale invasion. We see all the images of fighting coming out of Ukraine, cities being reduced to rubble. European leaders realize that they need to move away from Russian energy and quickly. I'm assuming they're panicking at this point. What options did European countries have? And they were panicking because not only did they see their source of energy potentially being cut off, but they were also looking at the market. And prices of energy were going to levels that would have been unimaginable before that, you know, double, quadruple prices that would be normal. And they're, they're still quite high. And we basically looked through all of the energy sources that Europe was relying on Russian for. And then we looked at all the possible alternatives. Where could it turn for something that wasn't Russian oil, gas, and coal? And how could it ramp up those alternatives? And one narrative that emerged very quickly and worked well with Europe's green ambitions was to just speed up the green transition and replace all those Russian fossil fuels with wind and solar and batteries. That is an option, but those things take time. And if you wanted to have energy for the winter, keep people warm, keep the lights on, building wind and solar could only go so far. As ambitious as they might want to be with renewables, they still have a dependency on fossil fuels. So it That's becomes right. a question of where do we get it from instead? Exactly. And then you have to look at each of those fossil fuels differently. Now, coal is easy to transport. And so if you don't buy it from Russia, well, you could go to the US a little bit further away or even Australia, which really has plenty away. of coal, but far away. Oil, on the other hand, global market again can be moved, but politically harder because the largest supplier of oil is OPEC Plus, which is the Middle Eastern countries mostly, uh, with Russia. And they are in agreement on how much supply they will put into the market. And so if Western powers suddenly wanted more oil, but did not want to take it from Russia, they would have to go begging to their old foes, Iran and Venezuela. Not going to look politically right, but there was room to try and increase supply from those countries. Gas is a lot harder. Yes, in the last few decades, we've been able to put gas on ships and move it around, but it's not cheap and there's just not enough infrastructure to make that happen at short notice. So what did Europe do? Well, it took a different approach for every different fuel and even different countries had slightly different plans. But the biggest challenge was gas. And it was also the most urgent because... Not only did the EU want to cut gas demand, but Russia was actually slashing supplies to Europe. Russia's state-owned energy supplier Gazprom says it is indefinitely halting the flow of gas through a key pipeline to Germany. But European leaders see Russia's move to halt gas supplies to Poland and Bulgaria because they won't pay in rubles as aggressive. So they really gave the Europeans no choice but to move as quickly as possible on gas. 
and they did everything they could to find alternatives. They tried to import more from North Africa. They got more from Norway, which is the biggest producer in Europe other than Russia. They got a bit more from the UK, but the by far biggest source of alternative supplies was liquefied natural gas, which is a kind of gas that is brought down to a really low temperature, put on these weird ships, and then you can move it all around the world. And most of the supplies of LNG come from the US, which has unlimited natural gas supplies, and Qatar. And the Europeans went to the US and paid whatever price was necessary to swap as much LNG as was available. And luckily enough for Europe, there was more LNG available than normal. Normally, the biggest player, buyer for liquefied natural gas is China, but China's economy was shut because of COVID last year. So there was a big amount of supply available for the Europeans to take in and meet their needs and fill up storage. These weird ships, though, we should explain. They look like these bulbous bodies floating in the ocean. There is a good reason for them being bulbous, right? They are essentially spherical tanks, multiple of them. And they're spherical because you've just put all this very high-pressured gas, turned it into a liquid, and put it into a sphere. And the sphere is an object that has fewer margins to have errors, and so you can actually store it for longer. So yes, it looks weird. But physics, guys. <laughs> LNG facts. Uh, we'll have to put a picture in the show notes showing those ships. Let's, but but, it, but yeah. it wasn't a unified strategy to start with when the European Union was trying to fix its gas problem. It effectively let its member states run around and just get their hands on as much gas as they could for as much money as they were willing to pay. Yeah, and they did things that they would have never done before. Germany had been completely relying on gas from Russia, and they didn't have any of the facilities to import LNG. So they bought it indirectly from other countries that did have supplies and facilities to bring it into the gas grid. But they also basically just threw out their environmental regulations to very quickly bring on floating LNG import terminals. You know, German regulations are notoriously cumbersome and projects take a long time to build there. But in Germany last year, they said, forget about all that. We need these supplies right now. And this gas diplomacy had downstream impacts, right? There were countries like Pakistan that had built gas power plants dependent on LNG at a certain price. And they were priced out to the extent where they could not have enough gas and there were blackouts. So Europe, in the end, does avoid blackouts. But there were blackouts in other countries. Bangladesh was another one. So if gas is the most difficult, most pressing challenge to fix, what did they do with both coal and oil? So oil, because of the political nature of that commodity, they ended up setting out a target that was going out a few months. So by December, they would sanction any imports of crude oil from Russia so that refineries and countries could figure out where the remainder of the supply would come from. As it turned out, some of that supply ended up coming through India. So India started importing a lot more of Russian crude. India has plenty of refineries capacity. And so India took cheap Russian crude, refined it, and then exported that to Europe. And we don't count that as coming from Russia. That's true. That's uh, how Europe has been able to manage its petrol and diesel prices. And then on coal, because they could import stuff from other countries... Extra supply came from the US, from Colombia, and from South Africa. And also, let's note that coal was burned more than usual because 
gas was so expensive that some of the power plants that were supposed to retire were put on hold and some of the coal power plants that didn't use that much coal in the past were using more coal. And coal burned for the past year jumped about 7%. Okay, so the coal amount actually increased. It did, yeah. So it's not just that imports were replaced from Russia, but there was more coal burned. After the break, enough about fossil fuels. How have renewables helped Europe out of its energy crisis? And where do heat pumps fit into the equation? Today's leaders face many hard choices, confronted with uncertainty, cost pressures, and growing shareholder demands. But they don't have to choose between pursuing climate and business goals. In fact, BCG research suggests that these ambitions go hand in hand. Did you know at least 40% of executives at large organizations estimate an annual financial benefit of $100 million for meeting emissions reduction targets, according to recent BCG research? BCG also found that transitioning to the circular economy could help unlock $4.5 trillion of GDP growth by 2030. The cost of inaction, however, is profound. In fact, further analysis indicates that missing climate targets could result in an average annual EBITDA reduction of 15%. At BCG, our experts recognize the myriad benefits, from risk mitigation to first-mover advantage, that come with sustainability. Let's partner to unlock a better sustainability journey. So we know that Europe has had a green strategy for a couple of decades now that actually helped alleviate some of the pressure on Europe because they had developed these non-fossil fuel sources over multiple years. But at the beginning of the crisis, there is this narrative that emerges, which is, yes, we can accelerate renewables as much as possible to try and fill some of the gap. So how much of a role have renewables ended up playing? Well, this time last year, when we were looking at what could Europe possibly do, the one clean energy source that we saw as potentially playing a role in going faster was solar, because solar panels are really simple. You can just basically put them anywhere. They're very easy to set up, and they start producing electricity immediately. And Europe really lived up to that. They installed by far record amount of new solar capacity all over. You know, Countries like the Netherlands, which aren't particularly sunny places, installed record amounts of new solar. And a lot of that came from households and businesses that were seeing their bills rise astronomically and just thought it made economic sense to put in some solar panels. And also a lot of them added batteries as well. So those are now permanently there and not just helping people last year to cut fossil fuels, but for the foreseeable future. Wind was about what we expected, but wind farms are much more complicated than solar. You can't just put a wind turbine anywhere. You need to permit them. And while there were some efforts to cut down on the time it takes to permit, there just wasn't that much possibility to go faster with wind. So while it did play a really important role and Europe has been ramping up wind and it was at a record level last year, it didn't go that much faster than it otherwise would have. And Europe needed this transition also because climate change plays havoc. In fact, last year, because of climate impacts, hydropower, which is one of the biggest sources of clean power, 
took a real hit. Mm. Um, Europe experienced its worst drought in 500 years, pushing down the level of water in many reservoirs and crimping hydropower supplies. A summer of record-breaking heat is drying up rivers across Europe. Shipping companies in Germany are preparing for the worst as levels on the River Rhine drop to critical levels. With more than 60% of the European Union and the UK now under a drought alert or warning, reservoirs and rivers are receding. At the same time, which made matters worse, nuclear power was becoming a trouble. There were nuclear reactors in France, which is a major source of nuclear power, an exporter of nuclear power to many countries, which had many maintenance issues. Some expected, others not. And because of the lower production of hydropower and nuclear power, Europe had to burn even more fossil fuels in that period. We also heard stories about solar panel costs going up, wind turbine prices going up. And when we spoke to Mads Nipper, the CEO of Orsted, for our episode in January, he was talking about how complicated it is to get permits for new wind farms. But he also brought up the issue of supply chains and inflation and how that was forcing him to put more pressure on his suppliers. How did those higher prices affect this renewable transition? That's true. And it certainly ought to have renewable energy prices go up, which have been for years going down. But because the delta, the difference between higher fossil fuel prices and slightly higher renewable prices only grew, the case for renewables has only gotten stronger. And they are also reliable. You know, you're never going to have a country cutting off your source of wind or solar. So the value of solar and wind from a political perspective has really gone up because energy security has come to the forefront of many policymakers' minds, and they now see renewables as part of that strategy. One thing that's also been in the news for all sorts of reasons is Europe's push to actually reduce energy demand. One of the big stories that came out, I think it was back in September, when France said, past midnight, the Eiffel Tower our greatest national monument will no longer be lit up. How successful has Europe been at reducing its energy needs and demands? So one thing we expected when we were looking at this story right after the war began was that if Europe were to take some of the lessons of previous energy crises, it would have gone on into a propaganda mode to urge citizens to lower their thermostats, to burn less oil, to use cars only on alternate days. Those were all things that were done in 1973 when there was an oil crisis. But we saw very little of it. And while there were efforts to limit how warm swimming pools could be and to lower the thermostats in office buildings and public buildings and just politicians urging people to try and cut down, the most effective way to cut demand for energy last year was just the weather. We had a incredibly warm fall and winter. I know I didn't turn on my heat until December. And because of that, there was an incredibly successful ability for Europe to cut demand. And that was kind of a, an easy way to cut demand. And there was also a difficult way, which was that a lot of industries were seeing the price of gas and electricity go up to five times what they were used to paying, and it just wasn't economical anymore to continue to produce. So a lot of industries shut down, and some of them may never turn back on. Right, and according to the figures that you used in your article, those drops were massive. Industrial gas use fell by 18% in 2022, higher than the 14% drop during the first year of the pandemic, and demand for residential gas fell by 15%. 
But coming back to your headline figure, that this time a year ago, Europe was sending as much as $1 billion a day to Russia, and that's now been reduced to a fraction of what it once was. That is a real transformation, and the speed of it has been remarkable. But what has been the cost of responding to this energy crisis? Well, while Europe wanted people to use less, they didn't want them to be forced to not turn the heat on because they couldn't afford it. And so according to the International Energy Agency, the EU spent about $350 billion subsidizing fossil fuel consumption last year. And you know the overall price was much higher than that just to account for the energy that people did pay for that wasn't subsidized. So hundreds of billions of euros, which meant you ended up spending more than what you would have paid Putin, but that was the goal, to try and not pay Putin as much money. You talked about the number of solar installations rising to record high levels, but what clean tech have we seen being adopted that will impact the demand? Heat pumps. Look, heat pumps are magic. They take one unit of energy from the grid and give you four units of energy. And that's exactly what everybody understood across Europe, as it turns out, from sales figures. We've got recent figures suggesting that sales across Europe grew by 37% year over year. And so clearly, heat pumps are things, at least for those who can afford it, because the upfront cost is high, something that people are turning to, because the long-term running cost of a heat pump is much, much lower. The other one is electric vehicles which have been on an upward trajectory. And last year, they increased about 20%, according to our colleagues at BNF. And that's not going to cut that much demand in the short term. But overall, over time, EVs should cut down on how much oil and petroleum products Europeans need to burn. And of course, EV numbers are lower because prices of EVs have gone up because of supply chain constraints, inflation, and of course, the cost of living crisis, which made it harder for people to make big purchases like EVs uh, in the past year. There is also one big motivation that will come through in the future years as Europe tightens its carbon emission standards, which will make EVs just much more attractive. And so that transition continues at pace. So you mentioned the cost of living crisis there, and we've talked a bit about how much this is all cost. Now that we're through the worst of winter, can we expect prices for energy to fall in 2023? Well, so far, that is what we're seeing. Prices are now below what they were at the start of the war, which is still high. Gas in Europe went below 50 euros for the first time since the start of the war. But you know, back in 2019, gas could be 15 euros. So 50 is still quite high, but we're seem to be for now out of the real crisis that happened last summer when gas prices looked like they could just keep going up forever. Also, this year, there is expectation that hydropower will return, and so will nuclear power. And if you combine more renewables, more hydro, more nuclear with lower demand, what you get is a pretty spectacular outcome. According to Bloomberg NEF, this year, Europe is set to burn 43% fewer fossil fuels for electricity compared to last year. Prior to the war, Europe already had relatively ambitious plans to reduce its emissions. Back in July 2021, it launched Fit for 55, which was its program to cut emissions by 55% by 2030 across Europe. But with the war, it's had to expand coal use, you said by 7 8%. It's had to build new fossil fuel infrastructure. We had Germany building LNG terminals and delay the closure of some of its fossil fuel run power stations. So macro picture here, what does the last year mean for Europe's clean energy transition? 
Well, we heard from Jennifer Morgan, the climate envoy for Germany, that the goal, at least from Germany's side, building all these LNG terminals, is not to lock in the fossil fuel. They have said they will make those terminals be hydrogen ready. How believable that is remains to be seen, but there are options that Europe is building into this new fossil fuel infrastructure to go clean. They also have tried to address some of the issues that have been holding back the development of renewables, which would permanently displace the need for fossil fuels. So the biggest one being permitting for wind farms can take an extremely long time. And Europe, at the highest level at least, has finally come to terms with that problem and is trying to address it to speed up the deployment of not just solar, but also wind. And we should recognize that despite more coal being burned, LNG terminals being built, actually the emissions from Europe in 2022 fell by 1%. And so Europe's not being put off track. In fact, in some sectors like solar, the transition is actually years ahead of where people estimated it to be because the price signals drove people to clean energy sources. It's clear that the EU's long-term direction is toward renewables and other green tech. The war has spurred a huge increase in deployment. Will that demand stay as high during 2023? Or now that the kind of initial crisis has began to ease a little bit, do you think that demand will actually slow? In the case of solar, we know that Europe actually has something like 70 gigawatts of solar already imported from many countries. And so deployment of solar is likely to stay high. Wind, on the other hand, may see a decline just because of all these other issues that are playing out for the next couple of years and then rise again. But batteries and EVs have a pretty positive outlook. Batteries doubled in their deployment in a year. We may not see another doubling, but there's expected to be an increased deployment. And EVs saw a 20% increase and likely will see another increase. I think it's important to think about what the speeding up really means at the macro level. I talked to people this year who worked for the companies that were installing solar panels, and they were starting academies to train installers and hiring those people on and developing the supply chains. And once that's established, it's there. It's going to keep being there and can just keep growing. You get renewable lock-in. Yeah. <laughs> so what we've seen with the war in 2022 and into this early part of 2023 is Europe's energy landscape being permanently altered. But there's another debate playing out, and that's the growing competition between the EU and the US. How is that going to affect Europe's green transition? So far, Europe has relied a lot on imported solar panels or batteries to try and push its green transition. The European Green Deal was supposed to bring in more manufacturing of batteries and other green technologies into Europe. But because of the pandemic and then the war, that conversation had sort of died down. And that's suddenly been lit up by what's happened in the US with the Inflation Reduction Act, which has all these incentives to try and bring manufacturing into the US. And that's making Europe reflect on its own shortcomings in the Green Deal, in its regulatory nature, and in its market uh, structure to try and speed up the manufacturing of green technologies in Europe. If it does that, and we don't know if Europe can match up to the big challenge that the US has put out, but if it does it, it's only going to make the green transition faster because it's going to bring manufacturing jobs tied to green industry in Europe and maybe even lower the cost of many of these green technologies further. 
Well, Akshat, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having us on the show, Oscar. Europe's move away from Russian fossil fuels towards other energy sources has happened at an extraordinary pace, and it's been beautifully illustrated in charts and figures as part of Will and Akshat's recent article, which we've linked in the show notes. In our conversation, we also discussed some of our previous episodes with German climate envoy Jennifer Morgan and Orsted CEO Mads Nipper. If you want to hear more from Zero, you can listen to those episodes now wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to Zero. If you like this episode, please take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, send it to a friend or share it with an energy executive. If you've got a suggestion for a guest or topic or something you just want us to look into, get in touch. We're at zeropod at bloomberg.net. Zero's producer is me, Oscar Boyd, and our senior producer is Christine Driscoll. Our theme music is composed by Wonderly. Special thanks to Todd Gillespie, John Anger, and Kira Bindrup. We'll be back with Akshat as host next week. <laughs>